This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Wharton Sports Business Show on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to the Wharton Sports Business Show here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We're here every Tuesday live at 4 p.m. Eastern, repeated throughout the week. This is your host, George Perry, Wharton Business School alum, and I'm joined today by our co-host, my co-host, Michelle Young, with the Wharton Sports Business Initiative. Uh, Michelle, how are you doing this week? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. We've got a great show on tap today. Someone here who can talk a little bit about the World Cup in general, and particularly the governing body, FIFA, who... Uh, two years ago uh, was finally, um, some people would say, uh, caught, uh, cheating, uh, corruption, etc. And our next guest here um, is Ken Bensinger, and he is the author of the new book, Red Card, uh, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Uh, Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So, Ken, if you could, you know, some of us are more familiar than others with, with the, the, the scandal and, and all that, that went on. I know that I had heard for years that, that FIFA was corrupt, but it was kind of like, okay, well, then why doesn't somebody do something about it? But harder, harder to, uh, uh, to do than, you know, than, than, than actually make it happen. So maybe you could just set the stage a little bit for listeners as to what was going on before anyone found out about all of this. Yeah, I mean, FIFA... Uh you know, is the organization, for those who don't know, that oversees all world soccer, based in Switzerland, kind of like the International Olympic Committee, um, and it governs the sport in, in every country in the world, and also runs uh, a number of tournaments, including the Women's World Cup, and particularly the Men's World Cup, which we you know is going on right now in Russia. Um, and uh, soccer is the most popular sport by, by leaps and bounds over any other sport in the world, even if it's not in the U.S., everywhere else, in the, if, uh, practically every other country in the world, it's number one. Um, and, and the World Cup's the most watched sporting event. And um, for many, many decades, FIFA was a fairly quiet, sleepy organization. But starting in the late 70s and then into the 80s, um, big sponsorship and TV money started pouring into the sport. And soon after that, pretty bad corruption started um, infecting the sport at, at what we've learned is almost every level or pretty much every level. And... Um, uh, it was an open secret, this kind of thing, where people, certainly certainly starting around, I would say around 2000, 2002 time period, people became cognizant that this sport was had some corruption problems, but no one ever really took the step of doing anything about it. And it developed into a, a culture of corruption and impunity about corruption um, that just got worse and worse as time went along. Um, and um, because soccer is so popular, I think that few countries were willing to, to really address the issue because they were scared of political blowback. I mean, you had politicians who were scared of losing office if they got in the wrong side of the football gods. And um, it, it ultimately um, seemed like it would never get in take, got taken care of until the U.S. came along. And um, there's an irony there, which is the U.S. is sort of the one country in the world that didn't care enough about soccer to really have that kind of political interference. And that gave... American prosecutors the breathing room they needed to to make a case, which they ultimately did. So there are a few big players in this. There's a lot of players, a few big players. But can you take us through the story and tell us how this actually became a U.S. uh, story and investigation? 
Uh, yeah, so um, it's, it's, there's quite a bit of sort of international intrigue in here, but um, the, I think the, the headline is that this started out um, as a very sort of tightly focused case um, that the FBI was looking into, um, and it was, it was a, a, an organized crime squad focusing on Russian organized crime that started this case in 2010 um, when they were working on a different parallel and un, unrelated case about a, uh, a Russian mobster who was running an illegal sports book um, in New York in the Trump Tower. And the FBI agents uh, running that case um, traveled to London um, and met with, uh, with a former MI6 spy who uh, had been doing research on Russia's bid uh, for the World Cup. At that point, in 2010, Russia had been bidding for the World Cup against England and several other countries. And this person, uh, who has now become quite famous, Christopher Steele, um, had been uh, had been hired to look into what Russia was up to, and what he found was that uh, was troubling to him. It suggested that uh, perhaps Russia wasn't playing by the rules, and um, he reported that information to the FBI agent. The FBI agent thought it might be a case, and, and um, learned about FIFA for the first time. Brought that back to New York, found a prosecutor in Brooklyn, and they opened the case. Um, and originally, it was a, really focused on that about what Russia might have done to try to influence FIFA decision-making about the World Cup, because in December 2010, about five months after the FBI agent opened the case, um, Russia indeed won the hosting rights that we're now seeing the fruit of today in, in the World Cup. Um, but over time, uh, and with a few twists of fate and um, some low-hanging fruit that the prosecutors went for, um, the case took a, a turn and became much larger and ultimately became focused on the culture of FIFA writ large, the entire institution, and not just one one nation. So before we continue, let me remind our audience that they're listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on SiriusXM's Business Radio Channel 111. We're talking to Ken Bensinger, the author of the new book, uh, uh, how the how the U- Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports can- Scandal. Um Ken, it'd be interesting to know how, how did you become involved in the in this story and 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 yeah, let's start with that. <laughs> sure. Um, so I'm an investigative reporter. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not specifically a sports reporter, although I do. I am a sports fan, and I do dip my toe into it from time to time. Um, and I uh, uh, started my career at the Wall Street Journal, and also worked at the LA Times for a number of years, um, and was hired. Um, by BuzzFeed News to be one of the first guys on the investigative team when they opened an investigations team in 2014. And did a few small stories, but the first big story I did was a profile um, of an American soccer official by the name of Chuck Blazer. And Blazer, um, for those who know who he is, is one of the most colorful and deeply corrupt figures in sort of modern sports history. Um, This is an immensely obese um, New Yorker who... Um, known for riding around Central Park in a mobility scooter with a parrot perched on his shoulder and a giant um, uh, bushy beard and a head of tangled curls. Um, But he also happened to be one of the 24 most powerful people in all of world soccer. And um, uh, he used his position to benefit the sport in many ways, but he also uh, used it to personally enrich himself tremendously. Um, And um, all the while he was doing that, he's not... Um, you know, uh, properly accounting for it or reporting it or telling anyone how much he's making. So I I wrote a profile of this guy and how he'd gotten rich off the sport, and the idea was that article would run just before the last World Cup, which was held in Brazil. Um, And the article ran, and people who were interested in the sport were interested in it, and um, that World Cup happened, and it was a a great World Cup from a 
viewing perspective, but also one that kind of destroyed Brazil's economy and kind of a reminder of um, the, the, uh, what what soccer and what FIFA can do to a place. The, the lust for it is so great that countries will just sort of put their entire economies on the line to, to host it. And um, about a year after the World Cup, um, there were these spectacular arrests in Zurich, which you may recall, um, early morning in, in Zurich, 6 a.m. Zurich time, um, police entered this, the fanciest hotel in Zurich and arrested a bunch of FIFA officials. Um, and it turned out they were doing it at the behest of the U.S. Justice Department. And this long-running secret investigation was finally breaking into the open. Um, this was a huge uh, front-page story, dominated world headlines for days and days, if not weeks. And within a couple of days, we learned that Chuck Blazer, the guy I had profiled a year earlier, was one of the central cooperators uh, for the Justice Department and had been informing for them and wearing a wire for them. And um, overnight, um, your humble investigative reporter based in Los Angeles, where I live, um, I uh, suddenly became the worldwide expert at the guy, on the guy at the center of the, the FIFA case. So there's a ton of interest in me doing more, and um, uh, I got the opportunity to, do, to try to take on a book, which I decided to do. Um, it was a, it was kind of a lightning in the bottle moment, but very exciting. Um, and so not, I not only uh, am fortunate to have gotten a book opportunity, but also I got a movie option at the same time uh, because there's so much interest in the story. And um, Warner Brothers bought the option, and um, a couple of famous movie stars wanted to produce it, and um, that was very exciting. Um, and then uh, I started working on it, and that's when I had a real problem because I found out that it was a really big story and complicated, and <laughs> it wasn't just Chuck Blazer. First of all, who's going to play you in the movie? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, d I did uh, had some fun on Twitter the other day, and I uh, I played uh, a dream casting type scenario where I put out what actors could play different FIFA characters, and someone um, responded and suggested that... Um, uh, uh, that they, there's a that there's a former Saturday Night Live uh, crew member whose uh, whose name is escaping me, but the guy who's on Brooklyn Ninety Nine now, Sam, uh, Andy Samberg. Oh uh, right. They said that could play me in the movie, um, and that uh, John Goodman would play uh, Chuck Blazer. Well, it's funny you said. I I once met uh, the guy who coached the Jamaican bobsled team, and and if you remember <laughs> the movie Cool Runnings, yeah. uh, you know the the coach ended up being John Candy who. You know, is maybe not the most attractive guy in the world, and this this coach of the Jamaica Bobsled was a really good looking guy, and he's like, they couldn't have made it, you know, Brad Pitt or something like that. They had to make a John Candy. So, so That's I, I really hope. Funny, usually it's, it's the opposite way, right? <laughs> right. Um, there was a movie out recently called Molly's Game. I don't know if you caught that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, uh, the lead lawyer in it is this, you know, is Idris Elba, this strikingly handsome uh, uh, African, well, well, black British man who. Um, uh, play the role, but for, in fact, the real lawyer in real life is like a is like a very short, kind of overweight, bald guy from Brooklyn. And uh, a partner of his was joking to me about how it was the best thing that ever happened to him is get this, <laughs> that movie getting cast. I can't wait to go. see this movie, guys. Um, so, Ken, can you talk a little bit about Russia hosting the World Cup this year and the the findings surrounding you know how they got that and and if that's good or bad and what. Uh, Putin's role in that was? Yeah, so um, so as I mentioned earlier, Russia had been accused of doing potentially funny things in getting the World Cup. They were competing against England, which was a clear favorite. England had everything going for it to win the World Cup. They had the stadiums, they had the hotels, airports, rail system, everything they needed to host the World Cup. And Russia had none of it, and what little infrastructure they had was in terrible condition. And nor did they have the, the economic resources to really pay for all this. Um, 
And there were a couple other bidders, but really everyone knew it was England and Russia. And so Russia getting it was very suspect. And there was accusations that they were bribing people either with money or payment in kind. Um, at least one FIFA voter admitted to receiving a painting from the Russian bid, uh, although he claimed it didn't count as a bribe because it was ugly. Um, uh, there was accusations that oligarchs at Putin's behest were um, influencing voters to vote uh, to vote for Russia, etc. Um, and um, all these suspicions were never fully uh, resolved because when FIFA ordered up an audit and an investigation into what happened in the bidding, um, they went to Russia, the investigators, and were told by the Russian bid that all the computers they used to run the bid had been borrowed computers and that they gave them back and that when they gave them back, the institution which um, had loaned them immediately destroyed the computers and therefore there were no records whatsoever. Um, which I, I've always thought it's a pretty suspicious way to <laughs> deal with an investigation. Um, FIFA being FIFA decided that was good enough for them and gave Russia a clean bill of health on their bid. Um, and that gets us to, to today. But um, it seems pretty evident that, that something odd happened. Um, uh, and, you know, it was enough to get the attention of someone like a Christopher Steele. Um, and now, you know, we're seeing the World Cup in Russia. And um, just today I was reminded of kind of, um, the sort of impunity with which Russia operates, which is that one of the um, one of the after effects of the criminal investigation is that the longtime FIFA president, a Swiss man named Seth Blatter, um, was forced to resign within days of these arrests I mentioned earlier. And um, after he resigned, he was uh, put under criminal investigation in Switzerland. And then FIFA's ethics committee banned him from the sport for eight years, uh, and that punishment was reduced to six years, but he's currently banned by FIFA. And under FIFA rules, if you're banned, it means you can't go to any FIFA uh, event, including and especially the World Cup. So Vladimir shouldn't be able to go to the World Cup, except Vladimir Putin extended a personal invitation to him to come, um, and Vladimir accepted it and arrived today by airplane, and is going to go sit in the presidential box with Putin um, at a match, I think, tomorrow, which, you know, if ever there was a a sign of Putin sort of thumbing his nose at the rest of the world and at FIFA, that, that's probably it. Well, and, and we've talked on this show before about uh, about the Olympics and, and the doping scandal there and, and, and mm-hmm. his role there. So it's certainly not unprecedented. So um, so actually, this is a great point. So what has, you know, what has FIFA done? What are they doing to, to change their culture to? Um, you know, I actually was at the event, an event uh at the museum uh, with the U.S. Soccer Foundation when they announced the Russia and, and, and Qatar bids and, and everybody was expecting it to be a U.S. win. Um, and, and there was a lot of disappointment. And, and there's a lot of suspicion that the Qatar bid was also, you know, one that was involved a lot of bribing. I mean, what are they doing now? They're still there's Qatar still scheduled to, to host the World Cup, uh, the next World Cup. So what are they doing uh, there at FIFA to kind of change everything? Um, you know, FIFA has definitely um, – uh, voiced an intention to reform in the uh, in um, in the wake of so much controversy um, and all the arrests and the criminal stuff. And, you know, they have new leadership, they have a new president, they have a new general secretary, they have sort of at almost every position, they have new people, they've changed the composition of their top executive committee, and now they call it the council, and it's gotten more members and also has women on it um, by statute for the first time, so there's always going to be at least one or two women on it, if not more which I think is really important given the role of women's soccer and how people love the Women's World Cup. Um, and um, they've uh, 
they've changed the way they vote for the World Cup. So instead of being voted on by this elite committee, it's now voted on by the full membership. Um, and um, so all that, and you know, I think, and by voting to host the U.S. in United in, in Canada, U.S. and Mexico, there's there, and rather than Morocco, they're making it clear that they're trying to sort of go towards the bids. It seemed a little a little cleaner on the face of it, anyway. So I think those are all the, the signs of a positive forward direction, but it's also an organization that has really deep-seated corruption, and I just don't think it's as simple as, as snapping their fingers or making a couple of changes and making it all go away. The new president, who I was there when he was elected, and he made some speech right away about how this is a new FIFA, nothing's going to be different. But within, you know, a couple of months, he was under investigation for ethics violations, and, you know, he'd been putting all these personal effects on the, on the FIFA credit card that shouldn't be covered by FIFA, um, and then he was flying around on um, airplanes for people, you know, powerful oligarchs and stuff that he probably shouldn't be flying around on with. And um, so up to the to the doubting uh, observers, it felt like more of the same. Um, and just two weeks ago, we saw that Ghana, the African uh, country that, that has been a, a pretty good soccer country, although it's not in this World Cup, um, the, there was a big video expose that ran on the BBC and elsewhere showing all the top officials of its soccer association taking cash bribes, right? And that, so just two weeks ago, the Ghanaian, Ghanaian Soccer Federation was dissolved because it's so horrendously corrupt. And that comes three years after um, all these busts that we saw in Zurich. So uh, I think there are baby steps being taken, but if you want to see a clean FIFA, I would suggest don't hold your breath quite yet. Well, and, and we have to take a break soon, but I do want to ask you kind of one other thing. Related to you know U.S., Mexico, and Canada winning this bid, there there was some talk uh, that Morocco might actually win. Uh, of course, a lot of people were thinking, okay, how are they going to win unless there's some bribes going on? Then you have our own president making a public statement that you know if you don't vote for for the U.S., you know you might see some. Uh, he inferred that there might be some other repercussions. Uh, you know, I don't know how that looked and and if if that helped or, or hurt. But what are your what are your thoughts just briefly on kind of how that process went and, and the fact that we now have, have the bid and how, what that's going to do for U.S. soccer. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'll tell you, I was, I, I was among those who thought that it might, Morocco might pull this one out. Um, I, I just thought that, the, that, that you had the perfect mix of um, uh, angered FIFA officials who were still mad and still sort of um, sore over the U.S. criminal case, which if it didn't affect them directly, it did indirectly. Their friends were sitting in jail or their opportunity to take more bribes from the game was severely curtailed. So I figured those people were bitter and angry about it. And then you had um, uh, the, pres- the President Trump's administration making noise about it in a way that would just was just bound to aggravate voters in other countries and give politicians in those countries um, uh, motivation to let the, let the soccer officials vote for Morocco rather than the U.S. So I thought it was a perfect storm of things for Morocco to win. I guess I was wrong, although Morocco did um, uh, manage to get together a pretty surprising number of votes considering how, on paper, its, its proposal was just so inferior to the U.S. and Canada and Mexico on every level. There's just nobody who's serious about dollars and cents would think that, that they could pull it off um, very well at all, if at all. So um, I guess I was wrong there, but it, it speaks to something else, which is that, that what the U.S., Canada, Mexico, United bid promise was much more money, much larger profits than what Morocco could realistically hope to deliver. And so I think what spoke through there was that, you know, um, the, the money was the most important thing. And all these soccer associations around in every country, which live off patronage from FIFA, I mean, 
for a big country like Brazil or Germany, it's not so important, but there's 211 member associations of FIFA, and many of them are in tiny countries with a small soccer base, if at all. And the annual money they get from FIFA as a distribution is, is, is their, it's basically their entire budget. I mean, some of these associations are from countries with 50 or 75,000 population in the whole country. And then every year they get a million or two million bucks from FIFA. It's massive and, and certainly gives a very nice lifestyle to the heads of associations. So, if, so yeah, so know, it, in the end, it, it always comes down to money. Ken, unfortunately, we do have to take a break, but we really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Uh, I am definitely going to go out and get Ken's book, uh, The Red Card. Ken, thank you for joining the show. Oh, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 